Joli, joli, the year is 1937. <laughs> and in 1937, King George VI of Great Britain mm-hmm. was formally coronated, ending the year of three kings, which is a an interesting little tidbit of history, wherein Britain almost almost had a fascist king, if you can believe it. For the first For time? For the first time. For the first time. Openly fascist. <laughs> Do you know what else happened in 1937? What else? The famous author Sir Tolkien released The Hobbit. Oh. That's the year The Hobbit was published. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Before you... World War II. Wow. I mean, something else happened in 1937, though. I feel like it's less cool. It is definitely much less cool, which is that the great Ziegfeld won the Oscar for Best Picture. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> My name is Andres Reyes. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit, a little bit about the um, the history of film and filmmaking, um, and I also try to talk about um, kind of more socialist aspects of representation in cinema, uh, minority representation in cinema, when it's applicable. My name is Mavis Evergreen. I will also be your critic. I talk about feminism and narrative and history yeah and we watched the great Ziegfeld and our predictions were very wrong we we were so there are zero magicians zero magicians in this movie really I guess there are zero magicians in this movie there is one piece of shit in this movie at least (laughs) I'd argue Um, there are a couple many several a lot do you want me to tell you the plot of this movie oh yeah please do Two pages today. The Great Ziegfeld, 1936, directed by Robert Z. Leonard and starring William Powell, Louise Rayner, and Myrna Loy. This movie, at a whopping runtime of 170 minutes, tells the excessive story of Florence Ziegfeld Jr., born in the humble village of Chicago, Illinois, to a poor, world-famous musical instructor. Ziegfeld gets his start managing strongman Eugene Sandow at the World's Fair in Chicago, but has his sights set towards higher creepier goals. He goes off to London, where he woos singer Anna Held, whisking her to New York, but does not find easy success among America's tepid elites. So he makes up a ton of weird shit about Anna to sell her as a media circus instead of talent. He marries Anna and gets started on his magnum opus, The Ziegfeld Follies. We watch a parade of women, immobile for seven show-stopping numbers, a feast of objectification and excess, But Ziegfeld is not content with success and cheats on his wife. Years later, he falls in love with Billy Burke, who, through love and commitment, manages to inspire him to four Broadway hits in one season. Then the stock market crashes and Ziegfeld loses everything. As his wife works in Hollywood, he wastes away, comforted by his butler, that he didn't waste his life. He will leave behind all the great shows he ever did. Ziegfeld is content with this and dies as he imagines one last show going ever and ever higher towards heaven. Slut. I think I would like to start by just getting the things we liked out of the way because they are very few. Things we liked. Oh, uh, let me, I only look at my notes actually because I don't remember (laughs) writing down the sentence I like very often. 
I think the only thing that I really came away liking from this film was that for the show-stopping numbers, of which there are seven, they did bring back a lot of the women who actually were in those numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's cool that these women got to reprise their roles. No, yeah, I think possibly the one interesting thing about this movie is that it's kind of the first documented case of stage shows being preserved because a lot of these women were reprising their roles, playing themselves on stage. It kind of gives you an idea of what it was about these stage shows that people in America were looking for. And I got to say, as cool as that is, mm-hmm. I'm very disappointed in what the content of what we yes. get to see was. Yes. That is the the only cool thing is that these women get to get to have the record of what they did alas what they did part of a system of terribleness also i think something that i think we just should just say on the top because i don't think i ever want to talk about it again is i think the two of the three leads in this movie william powell who plays ziegfeld and louisa rainier who plays um anna held are fantastic Anna Held is playing a very emotional, mm-hmm. frustrating, but very emotional role. And she's h- hitting it out of the park, left, right, and center. When she leaves the movie, there is a severe, I don't know what the word is, gap that is never really filled. It makes that middle half of the movie kind of the most entertaining the middle problem half, is middle hour, I should say. With her, with her leaving, right? Is her character in the writing is the most infuriating thing ever. Yeah. But she does she kind of ground Ziegfeld's shittiness because she is the pinnacle in which Ziegfeld's shittiness rotates. And even though it is often directed at her and at her expense, it sort of gives us a context for their lives. Um, but when she leaves, Ziegfeld is still shitty, but now it's just sort of implied and never actually seen, which makes it almost worse, right? Yeah. It just it leaves the character feeling empty because now there isn't even like a reason that we get to focus on him anymore because i feel like as soon as she leaves we just get a series of showstoppers with some background history thrown in randomly being sad yeah really the narrative stops when she leaves yeah i mean i should emphasize this movie's three hours long oh my god she is only in this movie for like the middle hour yeah but she brings a certain energy to Mm -hmm. the movie when she shows up that's nice she's incredibly funny yeah she's really funny and like as infuriating as her character is like this actress has like a certain level of almost above it all-ness that when she finally does be decisive when she finally does become decisive you root for her uh, that movie, is immediately taken yeah, away from her. I wouldn't say immediately. The movie takes it away from us about 45 minutes later, which yeah. fucking sucks. Yeah, it does. But it's cool. She won. She ended up winning Best Actress, I think, for this role. I think she totally deserves it because she's definitely doing a great job. Yeah. William Powell was not nominated for shit, and I think that's fine. But I also think he's doing a good job. He's playing Ziegfeld. He, I think he understands something that the movie doesn't, which is that Ziegfeld is like an oily piece of shit. He exudes... Just the scummiest Grease. man. The If you throw a match at this man, he lights on fire. He's just <laughs> so greasy. He exists to con people. Yeah. He's the worst kind of con man, though, which is a rich con man. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have the whole, like, underdog thing going for him. Like, yeah, he's a capitalist. There is no fail state because he always has money. It is just, am I making money? Or am I not? Or am I not? And the way he makes money 
is by taking it from hardworking people. Women, mostly. Women, but also like everyone around him. He doesn't pay the costumer. He doesn't pay the anyone he can steal a wage from he will he will absolutely and the movie the movie frames it as like this look at this hero look at this entrepreneur yeah his entrepreneurial spirit without him you know all of these amazing innovative stage shows uh, where in which we just get to watch women stand there and do nothing would Mm -hmm. not have happened it's but i i think the actor is doing a great job at selling him as being with the exception of the ending, which I don't think yeah. is the actor's fault so much as it is the writing's fault, mm-hmm. he does a great job of grounding that character in that like uh, like piece of shitness, right? Yeah. Like you understand why he gets away with it. It's because he's rich, and it's because the people who have money fall for it every time. Every time. Yeah, it's and it's be- because the people below him don't. There's nothing they can do, right? Like they've already done the labor. They're mm. not going to get paid now, and like. Maybe he'll pay me next time. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, right. And he won't, but he won't, you know. But... What else are you going to do? I don't know. It, it's weird. The movie does kind of frame him as being overly generous yeah. with like tips, which it... is weird because we, we never see the results of that and how he treats no. anybody else. Here, I think the movie, and this is a thing that I think the movie drops pretty quickly. Early, yeah. For the first hour... We are supposed to understand Ziegfeld narratively as almost naive with his money. Uh, he is contrasted he with a man who is very stingy and does not tip. And he is mm-hmm. like the Wizard of Oz giving away lots of money and tipping and stuff. And the idea is like, oh, well, he's a man of the people. But then in the second half of the movie, he is like conning costumers and set designers out of money and not paying them at all. And then for the third half of the movie, he's like putting all of his money in stocks, implying that he's sort of still not giving it to anyone. And so it doesn't make sense. No. The dichotomy of these two people. And yeah, I genuinely you, think you, it's just the first half of the movie wants you to like him. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of forget about that. And then they want him to be an entrepreneur. It's just, it's weird because, by the way, listener, we have left the realm of things we like and we are firmly <laughs> in the trenches of trying to understand the narrative yeah, of this film there, this movie is 170 minutes long we liked about five minutes of it so get ready for 165 minutes of bullshit <laughs> um the movie wants you to believe that he is an underdog mm-hmm. but he's not he's like he come like he comes from wealth like his mm-hmm. father like he doesn't come from like like a what's the word oil baron yeah he's not he's not a fucking steel baron or a like a railroad tycoon but his father is a world-renowned musical instructor in one of the largest cities in America, Chicago. Like, he has his own music school that he teaches at for the university. Like, it's his. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And, like, Ziegfeld... Ziegfeld is never also portrayed at any point as being penniless. He's never disowned by his family. He always has that support structure. And also, when... The movie says, oh, he's broke. What they mean is he doesn't have any incoming money, not the, that he doesn't have any money. This is this is talking about something that I think is, it's a thing that's been true for hundreds of years, pretty much, since, since this era, right? Like the late 1800s, early 1900s, which is that when rich people say they're broke, they don't mean I have no savings. They don't mean I have no money. What they mean is I have making no income, 
right? So when Ziegfeld is broke and down on his luck, he's still being waited on by a butler. Mm-hmm. His right, and his wife is still is working in Hollywood actively, right? And they and still own three houses. They still own yeah. They still own multiple homes. He still owns a fucking theater, like. Yeah. He's just he's just not making any income. His wife is, and he's sad about it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm broke. I lost everything in the stock market. And, like, historically, yes, Ziegfeld, when he died, like, left behind debts that his wife had to pay off. Um, and so she had to become an actress again. But, like, she was never at risk of poverty. She was never at risk of going hungry. Those debtors weren't going to send her to debtor's prison, right? She was an elite. He was an elite. The, he, they had all the time in the world to pay off those debts. And the U.S. government wasn't going to fucking, like, fine them for missing a payment like they do to peep to everyone else in the world, right, who's poor. Yeah. Like, this is money that they didn't need to live but because they don't have it. They're, quote, unquote, broke. And the entire movie, he is broke. The entire movie, they are trying to do this whole underdog by, thing. By this definition, though, right? Yeah. Like, not by any normal functioning human no. beings definition of broke. He's never at risk of going hungry. No. Right. Broke for him means, Hey, can one of my lit- rich friends lend me a couple thousand bucks so I can strike a deal with an actor and then take a boat home back to America. Yeah. Right. That's not broke. No. I think the thing that's also important to talk about is like the context of when this is happening and like that time period of like excess and wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, we are squarely in the post-World War One economic boom. We've hit the stock market crash at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Ziegfeld actually, I believe, dies four years before this movie comes out, yeah. which is about maybe one to two years before the movie starts getting made, which is wild. But right, like this movie comes out. When after the stock market crashed, but the thing that people need to understand is that when the stock market crashed, rich people weren't affected by it. In the same way that like when COVID hit, rich people weren't affected by it, right? That's the reality is that if you're rich enough, it just doesn't touch you. It doesn't actually matter to you. And the movie, but the movie starts prior to World War One, right? In mm-hmm. the pre-World War One economic boom. And then it also takes place in the post-World War One economic boom and kind of ends at the stock market crash. Mm-hmm. But for rich people in the United States, That was just up, up, and up, baby. That was just like gain, 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 right? The only people who lost out aren't represented in this movie in in any speaking roles. No. (laughs) And and the, the movie revels in the excess. It it glorifies it. In kind of a disgusting way. It wants to go back to that. This is once again, this no, you're right. Once again, this is a film. Where the central theme is, weren't these the good old days? Weren't these the good old days of Broadway? Weren't these the good good old days of shows? Don't you wish we could live this luxuriously again? And it's a fantasy that like the 99% can't take part of because they were never the 99% who got to live luxuriously. But I, I don't even think it's, I don't even think it's, I think it's more insidious than that, right? I think it's, it's just because all it is is celebrating. Yeah. I don't, I don't even think it's, Weren't the good old days better? I think I really do think this movie is living in this almost like opium addiction of it's always been like this. Isn't this great? Nothing bad has ever happened. Like, yeah, sure. You get some fucking like, you know, artistic weirdos like Ziegfeld who come along and, you know, shake things up a bit. But things are great and they've always been great and they're only going to get better. And like this, this movie lives in an optimism that you can only feel if you're rich. And if you're like, if you've ever been even remotely close to like poverty, you watch this and you're just disgusted by it. Like, why would anyone think this person's a fucking hero? Hero. 
unless you're rich and you know, well, I'm never going to be that guy. I'm never going to be that low. Yeah. Let's talk about the movie. We have the context for the movie. We have our summary for the movie. I want to talk about sort of a framing that happens in this movie, which is you had mentioned that this movie takes place after he had died. And so the person who sort of helped guide the movie in feeling correct and catching his mm-hmm. Ziegfeld, Ziggy vibe was his uh, second, second wife. wife, third major lover. <laughs> uh, Billy Burke. Billy Burke. And it is noticeably biased <laughs> is the kindest way I can say this. The worst, I think the worst, I have to break it down into like hours because we had to watch this movie in two chunks. Two the, different days this movie happened yeah, on. Yeah, because we, we watched an hour of this movie. And I think that the first hour of that movie is is grating and awful. And you could just drop it and not lose a goddamn thing. Yeah. This movie could have been 45 minutes long. <laughs> this movie? Okay. Here, editors know. This movie should have just been a reprise of shows. Cut all of the Ziegfeld personal life things. Just let these women redo their shows and be like, damn, these shows were on Broadway once and they're not anymore. So I looked Done. it up. Um, so something that I found out doing a little bit of reading is that they did do this. Later, they released two movies, one called Ziegfeld Girl and one called Ziegfeld Follies, in which it's just the show-stopping numbers, just the women being pretty and dancing and all mm-hmm. that shit. And then in between some segments, William Powell, reprising his role as Ziegfeld, comes up to be like, hey, it's me, Ziegfeld, telling you about this show and why I wrote it and stuff. Yeah, that seems way better. That's still problematic it's, but less awful it's still like an hour and a half of my life that i don't want wasted so yeah. I'm, like i definitely don't think i'm going to watch those but if that's what this movie was oh, God. and i had to watch it i would have definitely felt better about it yeah because the worst parts of this movie are the zeke filled personal life stuff the yeah. first and last hour are the worst fucking hours of these movies mm-hmm. they're awful and like that middle hour again is really only sustained by one like five show-stopping numbers mm-hmm. maybe more I know that there's calling seven them show stopping numbers is also a thing we're going to have to get into because like talking about these shows is a separate conversation. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. And Anna Hell um, mm-hmm. existing and being around and she's fun in a way that is like a breath of fresh air sometimes. Mm-hmm. But even that middle hour drags so mm-hmm. much and you just don't need all of it. You don't need it. So but going back to what you were saying earlier about Billy Burke being kind of a creative control, having a, some a modicum of creative control over the movies. <laughs> So portrayal. this is going to be a mix of just like actual history in the movie. So in the film, the first hour is him being nice and a narrative boy. And I don't think she really touched a lot of that. No. Um, the parts of it she touched, I think, are have a lot to do with his relationships with women. So his relationship with Anna Held, Anna Held uh, the French person I impersonated, is very much depicted unlovingly like she is obsessed with him but he was never interested in her at all and historically that's just not true (laughs) like it's it's weird because the movie does things that i think did happen historically right like he did buy her flowers every day the entire time they were married Mm -hmm. he did he also did buy her a ton of milk to bathe in that's also true um but like he he seems to have treated her very well and lovingly, but but the movie. But narratively, he does not care about yeah, her. Yeah, his his interactions with her as a person are dismissive and callous. Yeah, as if she's like a carry on luggage that he didn't mean to take on this flight. 
Then he had what he noted down personally as the love of his life who he cheated on his first wife with and stayed with. Lillian Lorraine, I believe her yeah, name was. Yeah, with Lillian have, Lorraine I'm not gonna look for that up almost the like rest that. of his life. She is not in the film at all. No. Not mentioned. And then his second wife. I think there is a character in the movie that is supposed to be like a stand-in for her, but is clearly like has no bearing a relationship. It's just the movie wanted to acknowledge that a woman was the reason why... Uh, his relationship with Anna Held fell apart, but it was a they. The movie went with a different woman and characterized her very grossly, very poorly. Was like, ah, oh, she's just an alcoholic slut, um, gold digger. It's true. And then his second wife, not played by herself, and was very upset about. She this. was very, and honestly, I'm kind of upset about Same. it too. She was like, I don't not, hold this against her. She can be upset yeah, about. Yeah, this. her husband died like two years ago. She's still young. Yeah, but she is very much framed as fixing him and them truly being in love and her being the reason for his success. And And I don't want to like say anything about her character, but I do think it is like, hey, maybe don't ask his second wife, who according to him, he wasn't that into about his romantic interests with other women. Like it just, it puts them in a very unfavorable light and her in a very favorable light that seems incredibly biased <laughs> i and and just to kind of i don't know like rub rub salt in the wound the character of billy burke in this movie is mm-hmm. so boring Perfect. so boring yeah just almost every time she's on screen she it, says the perfect she thing she just says she says exactly what he needs to hear and oh i, I i'm always going to love you and isn't everything going so well and perfect and it's like i do have a quote i want to read that she says oh great yeah find it and say it but like i will it's so fucking boring if i wanted to watch this much just generic lovey-dovey shit i would watch only the parts of a hallmark movie where the parents of the love interest are on screen because that's what this is it's fucking horse shit fantasy it didn't happen and it's boring but it feels so weird because he's such a skis bag he's canonically cheated on because the actor- everyone he's been with he's not like invested in any of the women seriously and it's like, okay. To have him just so violently all of a Shit. sudden at the end of the movie be like a like a Jesus figure is weird. It's he does so not weird. earn it. No. Oh, but the quote <clears throat> said by Billy Burke to her husband, Mr. Ziegfeld. Your sublime superiority. I would never expect you to reduce your life to just us. And she's saying shit like that all the time. And it's like, have the the one thing I can say about Anna Held is that even though her character is wishy-washy Charlie Brown shit, mm-hmm. like she eventually kicks that football and Lucy does, you know, yank it back. But <laughs> there's a certain amount of self-determination that mm-hmm. Anna Held has in this movie, even though she's portrayed so shittily. Yeah. She makes a decision and she sticks with it. And Billy Burke is just nothing. She's an effervescent fluid that just exists to fill Ziegfeld's container. That was a really gross metaphor. <laughs> that was a gross metaphor. That, and I didn't like it after I made it. But like, that's what this character is in the purposes of this film. Yeah. And I just. And I, it feels gross because she had to make it that way. Like this was a choice she as a human made. And that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> that's so depressing. And I do want to note. The Anna Held, mm-hmm. the person, the real life human fucking being, was dead at this was point. Was dead. She passed away like 
I think four or six years after their mm-hmm. divorce due to cancer. Like just, yeah. just she had a plasma cancer yeah. or something. Tragically young death. Mm-hmm. And like she has no way to defend herself and her how she's portrayed in this movie. And I think it's interesting how mm-hmm. in spite of that and in spite of how terribly she is portrayed in this movie, she is so much more interesting because she is being portrayed as a person with flaws and with yeah like a sense of dignity that's being taken from her by this shitty dude and like that's tragic right like that's a grecian tragedy that you're watching and i want to note that the real life anna held did not spend the rest of her life wallowing wasting away dying tragically young because she just couldn't get over the fact that Ziegfeld never came back to her once they got divorced she went back to acting she or not acting singing she had a very very active career during world war one where she sang on the front lines where she felt she could do the most good in her words not mine like (laughs) She was in the middle of she like literally was in the middle of rehearsals when she collapsed from her from her cancer. And then it was like at that point, it was like she died a couple days later, but she was in the middle of work. She never stopped doing what she loved. And the fact that this movie portrays her as being almost entirely smitten by this man is fucking heinous. The movie also portrays her. So Ziegfeld is like, I have had this genius idea. I'm oh, going to have right, right. hot women on stage to be ogled at. No one's ever thought about no this No one's ever before. thought about this before. And that's but not- in fact, and the movie also portrays her as being very jealous. Like, I, oh, like, how, oh could you, how could you? How could you focus on other women instead of moi? It's like, no. She is, in fact, the person who came up with the, this idea it's, because they were already doing these performances. They should have been called Anna Europe. Held's Follies. They should have been called Anna Held's Follies. Yeah, re- reviews. But also, she was obviously pro this idea because it was her idea. It was her fucking idea. I don't think she would have been like, wow, I can't believe you're going through with the thing I told you to do. Yeah, I'm I, so jealous. Historically, like reviews, which is the type of stage show that we're talking about, uh, a review. Because you review women. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, incredibly popular in Europe, had yet to find a foothold in America, but that's where Anna Held got her start. She was a Polish-born French and she got her start doing reviews in, in Poland and Hungary and France. And eventually that transitioned into her establishing herself as a singer. Um, that's that's how this industry worked in that part of Europe at the time. And so she was like, we could do this in America. Give a foothold to young women mm-hmm. and, and then allow them to grow from there. And Siegfeld was like, I like the first part of that. I think the second part of that is stupid. Um, but the movie portrays it as if he had he's had this idea since he was... A yeah, this movie gets no credit to Anne. Since he was a young man hitting on children. A thing that happens in this I think movie. He, ooh. It's really bad. It's really bad. And it comes back. And it comes back. And you're like, no. Um, thankfully, it doesn't. It. There was a moment in this movie where I, I genuinely thought, because I didn't know the history of this man, that when we were watching this movie, mm-hmm. he was going to marry a person, a woman, who he knew as a five-year-old. And I... He does make out with her. He does make out with her. The movie does portray this as wrong and bad. And him as being unwilling and disgusted by it. Which is good. Which is good. Unclear how true this was of the real life man. I would say I, I don't... I suspect that this wasn't incredibly true. Because... So let's talk about what a review is. Yeah. So a review is when you get a bunch of women on stage and you dress them in finery and reviews sort of change where you are. But let's talk about Ziegfeld's reviews. Yeah, the follies. Ziegfeld's follies, what he was famous for was 
selecting poor, often illiterate girls from literally school from the ages of like 13 to 15. Uh, He would, I wouldn't say steal them, but he would whisk them away, uh, dress them in nice clothes, and then would only teach them how to look nice and stand and walk in their clothes. And that was it. He did not want them to dance. He did not want them to sing. He thought the perfect fantasy was if they were only seen for five to ten minutes because then they couldn't break it. Mm-hmm. So he was incredibly cruel to these girls. In didn't what what did you? I remember you mentioned to me that that um, colloquially like oh. that they called it finishing school. Yeah, colloquially, Ziegfeld's girls. Uh, amongst themselves you would call it finishing school because he took them out of actual school so they would finish their school learning with zig failed jesus um because they were all underage but yeah and by incredibly cruel i don't actually know if he like hit them or anything but what i mean is like he was very controlling over their lives he would literally call them his pets because they were so dumb because he didn't teach them anything and then the sort of standards he held them to were impossibly high for them to keep up like they always had to spend all of their money on looking nice and if they ever fell below his standards he would just kick them to the street and they couldn't support themselves because they didn't know how to do anything other than literally look pretty motionlessly and then like on top of just this all of that there were strict weight guidelines, right? Like They had to weigh exactly 145 pounds was, because that was the weight of the goddess Venus. Mm-hmm. I, I, sure, I guess. This idea of how women in fashion should be treated, mm-hmm. I don't think has ever gone away. No. I think the standards have become, if anything, stricter. Yeah. And the way that a lot of these women are treated has become a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think this is like specifically the start of standardizing beauty standards that's redundant but this is sort of where it begins the idea of well this is what a beautiful woman should look like like and, the and term Ziegfeld girl was a standard of beauty you should look like a, a Ziegfeld, Ziegfeld girl. girl I think some somewhat insidiously I think it's also the beginning of it should be unattainable yeah it has to be unattainable because because if it's unattainable or because if it is attainable they're not it's gonna not special. It's not special. They're not going to spend the money, right? And mm-hmm. I think we still exist in that zone, right, of like true, quote unquote, beauty in in magazines and fashion and mm-hmm. models has to be unattainable. And we've pushed that far beyond the boundaries of reality. Like you have models like coming out and being like, I'm not that thin. I'm not. Nobody in the world is that thin. It's kind of a common knowledge, a thing that mm-hmm. we all accept that if you look at a woman on a magazine, she's been photoshopped. photoshopped. But I, I think the the extent to how photoshopped they are mm-hmm. doesn't cross our minds, no. right? And like the extent to which these women are being gussied up and presented is mm-hmm. a primitive sort of start for what eventually becomes that, right? Like we what we're selling is the fantasy, is the unattainableness of it. Mm-hmm. Because if it feels unattainable, women will be pressured by society to spend any amount of time, effort, mm-hmm. and money get as close as possible. But it's it's Icarus think, flying to the sun, right? Yeah. Like you're just hurting yourself. No, I agree. I think I think that part of it is awful and has only gotten worse. But I think something that specifically offends me about Ziegfeld's girls specifically specifically is not only are they objectified, mm-hmm. like literally their whole point is to be looked at 
and that's it. But to the point in which they are objectified, I think is almost unique. Like there are things that are objectifying today, right? Of course there are. We still have like models and singers and things, but like models are at least expected to walk down an alley and do a pose, right? Yeah. Ziegfeld literally didn't want them to move. Mm. There were girls in which she was like, if you move a muscle, I'll fire you. Like, he so much wanted them to be mannequins that he called them mannequins. <laughs> and, like, the the purpose of what the fall... Also, and, none of this is in the movie, obviously. Yeah, right. Like, of course <laughs> not. Because the, the movie is so obsessed with Ziegfeld, the great mm-hmm. Ziegfeld. The great Ziegfeld. And, like, we're going to get to that at some point but mm-hmm. i want to keep i want to keep going down this line of reasoning i feel like an interviewer like i'm interviewing <laughs> you i oh. want to keep going down this line of reasoning because you mentioned the what what the follies was let mm-hmm. me let me go back a little bit the follies was a yearly show right it was an mm-hmm. annual review which meant that every year he would put together a new show with a new theme with uh, possibly new girls who knows like whoever made it and yeah. you know a bunch of new people there was an almost haute couture obsession that Ziegfeld had with making these women look nice not Mm -hmm. just to men but also to women right because because what he's selling to men is the fantasy of the unattainable woman but what he's selling to women is this is what you should aspire to be yeah and so so there's it's genius in a way because it Mm -hmm. means that men and women want to go watch these shows Mm -hmm. and you know he doesn't just have women he also has like tap dancers and men yelling and shit like and blackface and blackface and a lot of blackface we this is the first time I think we've officially seen blackface we both saw Blackface white. and a black character with speaking lines. Yeah, th- it was weird. A, a weird thing to have both not just a not just a, not just a person of color, a mm-hmm. woman, a, yeah. a a black woman with Playing speaking lines. Playing a classic Southern maid. Yeah, which is bad, but like the first time we got that, and at the same time, the first time we okay. saw full on white, white dude wearing blackface, blackface yeah. was a weird combination. Emotions in me of like. <laughs> I just feel bad now. <laughs> I, I feel I like feel I bad. hit a point of like, why both? Why not? Clearly, no. you don't. Clearly, you found people of color. Think, why both? You think Billy Burke insisted? I don't know. Man. So, so going. So, gosh, I feel like we're just like, there's so much. There's so much. Going back. The So, The Follies was an annual show. But a big part of the show was costuming these women. And in the movie, the costumer is like a French dunce. Almost Three Stooges looking guy who's like, Mr. Ziegfeld, you must pay me. And then Ziegfeld like smooths one over on him where he's like, this isn't what I wanted. And he's like, but I already made them. Well, you know, it's not what I wanted. But if you want me to show them, I'm, uh, you know, I I don't know. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free. That way they can get exposure. Um, I made a look. Like, yeah. like as if I was mugging to the camera, like mm, exposure, exposure, but you can't see that. But in real life, he had a dedicated costume designer, right? Yeah, he had a dedicated costumer who was a woman um, because he believed that only a woman would know how to make women look nice. Which is fair. Which is interesting. I feel like the real Ziegfeld is still a piece of shit, but a much more interesting piece of shit. And I, and I think just going back <laughs> mm-hmm. to the mutiny on the bounty thing, I do think that the real life Ziegfeld is kind of interesting. Yeah. Like if this is a part of both stage and fashion history that you're interested in, mm-hmm. it's worth learning because he did change the game and in, in, in all of the bad ways. In and all it, of the it, bad ways. It had to be changed before yeah. it, we got to like the standard Hollywood model. Mm-hmm. But this movie just, 
like puts a sheen on it and like makes you <laughs> they put a such a thick sheen that it is a different sculpture and it, and also very masturbatory oh yeah no it is, it is a gross. sculpture of a dick it's gross it's sticky <laughs> i don't like it um no and another thing that i think is interesting is uh Ziegfeld didn't actually come up with the like unattainable girl thing he was just like hot women the unattainable girl thing came from the costumer who was like, they should look cold. Right. Because prior to her being given that creative freedom, the, yeah. they were instructed by Ziegfeld, I assume, to always like be smiling. To always be laughing like, like, ah, and giggling. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. And then, but then, and the movie does show this. And I remember pointing it out to because I was yeah. like, this is weird. This must be when like the shift happened between mm-hmm. like, women must always be smiling in advertisements and stuff to women must always be like stoic and like, you know, making that, face that model they gotta be smizing is that the word yeah you smile with your eyes not with your lips smize that that just that cold model look that we Mm -hmm. you you know what i'm talking about when i say that like it's the look that models make or actors make when they're doing a photo shoot right it's like it's not happy but it's not stoic smite it's smizing i guess that's what it's called i don't like that word it sounds weird in my mouth but um it's in this movie and I was like really weirded out by it because I didn't realize it happened so long ago. Also, it comes into this movie with no context. No context. And the, the reality of it is, is that this woman was like, no, if you really want them to be an unattainable fantasy that men want. They can't be so willing. They, yeah, they have to be. Distant. Gross. Yeah. I don't know that there's much more to be said about the the revenue of women. Um, There are a lot of stories of Hollywood actresses who um, successfully got into the Siegfeld girls and then quit because they were like, he doesn't want me to do the thing that I do, which is sing, which is act, act which is dance. dance. Yeah. So a lot of the girls um, who went to Hollywood, not a lot, but a number of them were leaving this. If you look up like, you know, Siegfeld girls, like there are quite a few of them who are like, you're like, oh, that's this famous actress. A lot of Siegfeld girls who came from poverty and didn't have any skills were picked out of school ended up in terribly abusive relationships with millionaires it's like well documented that they would just follow rich men because they didn't know what else to do and would just take abuse until they died famously one woman left to europe to chase a man who had previously abused her uh, because she got kicked out of the ziegfeld girls for having bruises and was like well it's I'll all... die of poverty in the street and then die at his hands. It's, it's such a it's such a trap. Yeah. And you you still see this. This is still a thing that happens. Maybe not as obviously, but you know, like the insidiousness of it is one, it, it is just what abusive relationships are. Yeah. It's what they prime you to be. And two, like there are plenty of industries, the music industry and the acting industry that do this still to women. They take away like any safety network you have, bring you to a new place and then don't really allow you to do anything other than be what they want you to be. Mm -hmm. So if you leave, you end up in a very desperate situation. This is terribly sad. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about, about Ziegfeld, the man, the myth, the myth specifically. The man, the myth, the legend. Because the man, Ziegfeld is... I mean, as much as he did a lot of interesting things, he himself is terribly uninteresting. Yeah. Right? He was a rich dude who... Did rich dude things. Who did, yeah, who had a formal education in music. Mm-hmm. 
and went on to produce musicals. Mm-hmm. Okay. He only produced them. He did not actually write the music or the choreography or the set. Like, he had a team who did all of that. Like, all he was was money. Yeah. But he. Even the original idea for these girls came from his wife. Yeah. And I, I will say there is, I think, there is some, I, I want to say, value or skill in recognizing talent and utilizing mm-hmm. it. And I think I think Ziegfeld did have a good eye for talent, uh, especially when it came to actors and singers for his musicals, as well as songwriters and composers. Because, you know, the, the musicals that he did do are very long running. You know, one of them, I think the longest running being Showboat, which apparently still gets played today. And yes, it's called Showboat. Kill me. I hope, I can only hope is the origin of the term showboat. No, I hope he knew what showboat meant and he was like, this is a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I was thinking it happened the opposite way where he was like, it's like, I'm making this ostentatious musical called Showboat. And people were like, ah, he's showboating. showboating. Regardless. But that's the thing is recognizing talent is not a skill unless you have money. Yeah. Right? Unless you have the money to pay that talent to mm-hmm. work for you. But he gets all the credit, right? Like, yeah. And like none of these women get credited. None no. of the, the this costume designer who I don't think is ever named. No. Um is uncredited. His wife never got credited. Anna Held specifically never got credited. Mm-hmm. Like it's all Zeekfeld baby. And this is the myth of mm-hmm. the great entrepreneur, right? This is Walt Disney. This is Mark Zuckerberg. This is Tesla man. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. This is like n- this is Bill Gates. This is Steve Jobs. This is name any successful American entrepreneur ever, any of them, any one, any fucking one. And if you learn even a little bit about them, what you find out is that they are entirely unremarkable people who have money. And that means that they have, they are in a unique position where they can take advantage of other people's people's ideals. And (laughs) this is what they do. This is what Bill Gates does. This is what Steve Jobs does. Elon Musk literally paid engineers money so that he could say he invented the electric car and they have a non-disclosure agreement. So nope, the, the person, the people who actually invented the batteries, who actually invented the hydraulic systems, right? They don't get a fucking cent of credit, right? Walt Disney did the same fucking thing. Ub Iwerks was the, was the actual person who did all of the animations. He did all the actual work. All Walt Disney did was, I mean, he did do some basic animation, but all he did was... Have money. Come up with an idea and then say, hey, Ub, can you do this? And Ub would be like, let me figure it out. And then he'd figure it out and Walt Disney would say, I've come up with another great idea, right? Like, Ub Iwerks designed Mickey Mouse. That was him. Like, Walt Disney didn't do a fucking cent of anything. He just had access to money. And like, Steve Jobs is the same way. Like, oh, I know everybody in America loves sucking Steve Jobs' dick, (laughs) especially now that he's dead. We love it. But like, he didn't do fucking shit. Like, he didn't do anything. He was a good salesman. And that's what we're glorifying. We're glorifying con artists. We're glorifying people who can go around and with some amount of oily charisma, steal ideas from the poor, money from the rich, and then call it their own, and then make an empire out of it. Sure. (sighs) Is that... No. Like, there's not... Much more I can add to that. That was very eloquently done. Like it is the capitalist dream, right? To be the entrepreneur, to be the slick, oily man who scams other people out of it, right? Who and scams, that's the thing yeah. is it's always men. The poor out of their ideas and the rich out of their money. And, and it's like, it's 
frustrating. Yeah. We, it is frustrating to watch three hours of a movie be like, hey, look at this terrible man, you, but also is, we love him. You should want to be this. You should want to be this. And it's you like, should admire this man if, for abusing others. If any part of you- Because you didn't do that abuse. If any part of you looks at this and thinks, this is what success looks like, one, you need to go to therapy. I'm sorry. <laughs> like We all do. It's expensive. We all do. Um, but two, you need to really ask yourself like, what it is that you want out of life because- I think I think something that this movie can't answer is its final question, mm-hmm. which is, you know, did Ziegfeld do anything worth anything? And no. I don't think so. I also don't think so. This movie definitely ends with like, oh, he he's going higher and higher. To he's heaven. a man. I I don't even think it's to heaven, right? I think the implication of him going higher and higher is the idea that if he wouldn't have died, he would have done greater and he greater things. He would have elevated the art form even further. Yeah, but and the idea of like. Every entrepreneur is would make things great forever. This weird idea of like perpetual motion. And the thing is, is like, no, they weren't even your ideas to begin with. This is this is, I think, the beautiful. I think the beautiful thing illustrated by this mm-hmm. movie, which believes so much in the myth of how great this person is, and it's that I had no fucking idea who this guy was before I watched this movie. That we thought <laughs> he was a Jewish magician. We hoped he was a Jewish magician. Instead, he was. A German con man, uh, a German American, uh, American born German con man. But like, that's the irony, right? Yeah. This movie wants to believe so bad that this is a man worth remembering and he's fucking not. I mean, if it's any like condolence to right now, I can only hope that our Steve Jobses and our Elon Musks like this man also get forgotten. We're like, damn, is Elon Musk a cologne? (laughs) I, it gives me hope. Yeah. That that if anything that this movie does is it gives me hope that that eventually it is entirely possible that you know in thirty years no one's gonna know who Steve Jobs is. Why would you care? Why right? would you? Like assuming Apple still exists, but like I don't know. I don't remember the guy who founded General Electric. I ho- I can only hope that that's true. Right. Yeah. That we constantly prove to these fucking movie producers and rich men that mm-hmm. they're wrong. They're not going to be remembered. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think a thing that does suck that was like the thing that did live past him is like his treatment of women. <laughs> that was the part that stuck like, ah, yes, we should. We should treat women terribly mm-hmm. and hold them to absurd standards. But yeah, like it wasn't a thing he invented. It was just a thing he popularized in the media in which he created things. So. Yeah. What else? What else is there? Here's the thing. It's three hours and there's not much to say about it. Like, it's just a lot of filler. It is so much just nothing. Yeah. It takes up a lot of space, but there's nothing in there. And I'm, I'm mad that I had to watch it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like every other movie we've watched. Yeah. I found something about it that I'm like, you know what? I may not have liked it, but I'm glad that I watched it because, you know, it, I, was, it was an hour and 20 minutes I of something. I hate Mutiny on the Bounty. I find it very offensive. But I got to learn about this weird Christian cult. Yeah, we got to I learn. I got to learn about Tahiti, yeah, and, a thing I never would have researched. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. I feel like every other movie, we've gotten something out of it that is like something, right? Even even just the movie itself, right? Like, this movie is nothing. It's this movie, three hours long. This movie weirdly has nothing to say about society because it only cares about the rich. 
And so it just doesn't comment on society at large. It doesn't comment on the world at large. As much as this movie travels, I think more than most movies we watched have, it has nothing to say about the places or the people or the interactions Mm -hmm. that happen around it. And Ziegfeld barely interacts with the world other than to get a quick buck out of it. Like there just isn't much to be said. He is is in a way, I think the, I don't know. it's, It's one of those things where if you are the wrong kind of middle class person you would see him as somebody to look up to mm-hmm. this is somebody who, who who was able to crawl their way out of middle class and touch. i wouldn't even say he was middle class but i would say he was like I, definitively no, I, well I, off i would i would say he's middle class because his, I, okay sorry continue. because because his father's in academia here see here's why i wouldn't say he's middle class because this movie doesn't happen now now i would say he's middle class oh. but the time and space this movie takes part in Academia was for the rich. Fair enough. Yeah, no. Like academia was not a middleman's game. I forget how early this movie starts. No, you're absolutely correct. This is a person who goes from upper class to he gets to touch the world of the elites. He really does. Point in case, like he's not really reaching for the stars. He's reaching next door. But but that's the thing, right? Is that if you're if you're a sufficiently stupid middle class person, (laughs) you might see him as a sort of hero star. But the thing that you need to understand is that the elite. The mm-hmm. upper class, the 1%, the people who actually have money and power, they're laughing at him. They yeah. think he's a fucking idiot. and But they're glad that he's around because he's entertainment. Literally, there's a character in this movie who has money the entire time and keeps giving it to him just to see what just he'll see, do, yeah. just to play with him. And and he loves it. Yeah. He might pretend that he's that annoyed. He's annoyed, but he loves it. This guy is his personal pet project. Court jester. Yeah. Right? And that's the thing, is that you shouldn't aspire to be a laughingstock for these fucking people. You should aspire. Also, you shouldn't feel bad for Ziegfeld no, in this no, moment either. No, he, he, no, 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 no. I'm not saying feel bad yeah. for Ziegfeld. This guy was a piece of shit. I'm saying that if, if you have any semblance of class consciousness, you shouldn't look at this man as something to aspire to. You should look at him as something that's pathetic. And you should look at the people who are enabling him as something to be torn down. Agreed. Fuck this movie. <laughs> There's no good three-hour movie. So uh, what was your favorite scene in the movie? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. As uh-huh. much as I hated it, I think it, it genuinely hit me emotionally where it needed it to hit me. Uh-huh. The scene where Anna Held decides to call Siegfeld uh-huh. to congratulate him on getting married to his second wife is genuinely heartbreaking. At this point, you've spent like an hour and a half of your life with this woman and it sucks so hard to see her. She divorces him and then to see the movie take it away from her. Take it away from her and like I was, it didn't hit me the way the movie wanted it to hit me. No. I was furious. I was fucking mad. And honestly, for making me feel an emotion, it gets the fucking ribbon. My favorite scene in the movie was when he's like very proudly like i've gotten into stocks recently and i was like (laughs) oh have you tell me more and he's like i'm gonna invest all my money into stocks and i was like i think that's a wonderful idea i think you should invest all your money into stocks i love how at first you were like oh great now he's getting into stocks now he's gonna get even richer and i was like no it's dramatic irony and as soon as as soon as you said i I was like oh he's getting into stocks is he like two seconds after he finishes the sentence right yeah it's a phone call that's like the stocks have failed like Fuck yeah, dude. Get <laughs> dunked on. Get dunked on. If we were done with this podcast, 
Would we're not. I tell, tell me what ages. All day long, how old these people are. I thought that was pretty good. Excuse that was you. Good. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were going anywhere with it. I was it. going somewhere with it. I apologize. All right. Not going to your third daughter's marriage. <laughs> Oh, we didn't mention. Sorry. When Anna Held died of cancer, Ziegfeld didn't go to her fucking funeral because he's a piece of shit. Sorry. That's all I wanted to say. We're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. You mean this man doesn't respect women? I never would have guessed. Because he had a phobia of death. More like Fuck. he's a phobia of pussy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're cutting that. All right. How old do you think William Powell, who played Ziegfeld in this movie, was? 44. That is right on the money. He was born in 1892. He was exactly 44. Did you cheat? No. no. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks. You're getting really good at this. <laughs> How old was Louise Rayner, who played Anna Held? Okay. She's pretty young. I'm going to say she does sing not great, so I don't think she's like an established singer. I'm going to say that she is... 23. Pretty good. Pretty mm -hmm. close. Okay. She was 26. She was born oh. in 1910. Nice. I should have given her more clearance. <laughs> and Myrna Loy, who played Billy Burke. Okay, I do know that they casted a younger actress to play her. Well, younger than Billy Burke. Younger than Billy Burke. Who you don't know how old she who is. Who I don't know how old she is. I'm going to guess also she doesn't do anything in the film other than like literally stand around. So I'm going to guess she's probably pretty young. Um, I'm going to go with 24. I would have. I think I agree with you. Her her lack of presence in this movie, yeah. I think, makes her feel very young because it makes her feel inexperienced. She has no she has like no energy compared yeah. to mm -hmm. Louise Rayner. She was 31. Oh. She was born in 1905, so she's a solid five years older than Louise Rayner and does not, I will say, this this movie makes her look amazing. Yeah. Because, yeah, she she feels infantilized, yeah. and that probably doesn't help. Nope. We don't get a lot of time with her, and I think when we don't get a lot of time with actresses, I kind of assume it's because they're bad at acting. I've And I um, and this is just kind of a thing to note, yeah. right, which is that William Powell and Myrna Loy go on to be in, like, 15 movies together, one of them being very a very famous film, called The Thin Man, which is based on a book by Dashniel Hamnett. But apparently it's a very famous adaptation in which they play the gimmick is that they are both rich socialites mm -hmm. who have nothing to do with their lives. So mm -hmm. what they do is solve murders. I think, I just think it's really interesting that The Thin Man got that video game where you like find notes. Where you find five pieces of paper and yeah, then he's Yeah, and you're like, chased by The Thin and, Man. And he's like, I've solved your murder. And then he kills you. <laughs> yeah. It was me. I did it. No, no. You're thinking of Slender Man. Oh. Um, got, got common, common, common misconception. misconception. <laughs> That's actually why I read The Thin Man, because I thought it was a Slender Man book. You were like, oh my God, I oh didn't my, know Slender I Man love, was based on a book. I love Slender Man. I just finished Marble Hornets. I want to read a book about him. Often I confuse The Thin Man book with Thinner. I thought Thinner was a thinner. sequel. Thinner. Yeah, yeah, like The Thin Man, and then he gets even thinner. Thinner, yeah. And then he becomes The Slender Man. He becomes The Slender Man. The, the ultimate trilogy is The Thin Man by Dash Neil Hammett, and then you read Thinner by Stephen King mm -hmm. or watch it, and then you play the Slender Man. You games. watch Bye Bye Man. <laughs> don't think it, don't say it. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> oh, fuck. I've been your critic, Mavis Evergreen. You can find me at Twitter at 
Mavis Evergreen. And uh, I'm Andres Reyes. You can find me on Twitter at Royalty underscore Valens. You can also find me at my other podcast, Direct to Dot Video, which I do with my friend Tony, which is slightly more fun sometimes, although we are going back into the weird world of the Swan Princess. So tune in for that. <laughs> Would you say you're swan diving into? I, I do think this is our swan song. This is, it's going to kill us. <laughs> I want to stress, mm-hmm. some people use the great Ziegfeld as a cautionary tale mm-hmm. that when when it goes bad this is what you get mm-hmm. this is the academy awards this movie is what the academy awards strives to give best picture do you think it deserved an oscar no absolutely i think it this movie got an oscar because it was expensive to make this is what the academy awards wants to be great best picture right every year is asinine forgettable unchanging nothing that little golden statue does not signify quality and from my heart to yours an entrepreneur will never be your friend it's true Can you can you do the Amelie voice but with a French accent? Ah, uh, maybe. Oui, je m'appelle Marie Antoinette. Okay. That's how, <laughs> that's how I get into the song. Je, je m'appelle Marie Antoinette. That's how you do it. That's how I get into the song. Je like to get my head cut off like the meat cake. It's me, little Marie Antoinette. Hello, it Hello. is me, Marie Antoinette, and I thought you would like some cake. I thought you would like to eat some cake. Let them eat it. Don't I have it on top of the cake. It is me. Small, nerdy Antoinette. Oh no, the royal icing is too thick and now I'm drowning in the cake. Ooh, my blood. My blood. <laughs> I'm a vampire now. Ooh. Well, smallest guillotine. Look just for me. Just for me. Tiny Marie Antoinette. Je Marie Antoinette. <laughs> what do you want me to say? The year is 1937. Oh.